0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Alternate reality powers. Cody Swendrowski. Period monsters. And an unmentionable Roman city.
1: Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about?
0: Hmm, I mean the one from Atlas Games, uh, Plain something?
1: It's Plain Gia, Robin, the star shaman's song of Plain Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e! Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy role-playing right now! Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dino-rific? I do dare say dino There's the Plain Gia core book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called the Songs of the Stone Age. The Rattle of Dice, The Thump of Miniatures, The Crunch of Doritos, And the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton, coming alive with hot dogs for fingers, welcomes us once more into The Gaming Hut, where beloved Patreon backer Jacob Borsma asks us to tell him more about everything, everywhere, all at once. Specifically, what considerations would you have for using alternate realities and players that can manipulate them in a role-playing game? Robin, Back when I used to be on forums and mailing lists, back in the old part of the internet, every time a cool movie came out, there was a giant, how do I use this in my role playing game? Buzz. That is probably still happening on on some Discord somewhere. Direcco of uh, how do I do this? And the funny funniest thing was when the the cool thing would come out, and it would be entirely unsuitable for like unknown armies, and people would still be like, <laughs> "How do we do this in unknown armies?" Yes. And no one wanted to hear. You shouldn't move on. They all wanted to get their yah yas out. And uh, that's... People want to use
0: it in their thing that they're familiar with, that they like, not some other thing that they would then have to go by, familiarize themselves with. And by the time they do that, they've forgotten what it was they were trying to adapt.
1: So in that spirit, let us answer the question of everything, everywhere, all at once. And uh, what the gameable bits of it. Happened to me be. because obviously the heart of it, as you and I, have, I think, both pointed out in our review, is it's a reconciliation between mother and daughter. It's a family coming together story. Yes,
0: it's it's a nerd troped family drama, about right? The exactly between generations of uh, first gen and
1: second gen immigrants. And, and and my argument is that without the luminous acting of Michelle Yeoh, an unsquandered Michelle Yeoh at the center of it, people might perhaps notice that the metaphysics are, to put a word to it, kind of dumb.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I think I'm going to be generous and say that they're kooky, right? They're sort right, of on enough. purpose, right? That's, yeah. not, that's not the point of it. They're supposed to be loopy. And because of that, it's eminently stealable for a superpower for a role-playing character, particularly in a modern weirdness game or even a superhero game, because as far as there are procedural elements to that, Film the superpower that Evelyn uh, Wang, the uh, Michelle Yeoh character, has is essentially a really cool gloss or skin on the good old-fashioned jack of all trades mm-hmm. ability, where you yep. can suddenly become good at a whole bunch of other things. And so that's a a long running part of uh, role playing and something that always has to be handled carefully because uh, the thing about a jack of all trades character is that everybody else might or might not care that you can also step on their shticks. Mm-hmm. So that if you can reach into another dimension and snag a power that you don't have or, or an, uh, an ability, the first question is, does the other person at the table uh, mind? So one thing you can do is say, well, first of all, that presumably some in some alternate reality, there is a version of you with super strength. Mm-hmm. But since Bob, the other player character of the player sitting next to you has super strength and that's Bob's thing. Either you will always fail to get super strength. So you don't try, or you can have super strength when you're not in the scene with Bob or Bob can go, we can both have super strength. If you only have it occasionally, that's fine. right. Bob right. is so cool get, with it. You get buy-in from the characters with the sticks that you're possibly going to uh, step on. Uh, and that's just basic jack of all trades thing because you know we all know that there are games where you know for example the magic user in D at a certain point gets to be good at everything mm-hmm. everybody else is shticks and uh, you don't want that even if you're getting those powers uh, multiversally
1: right yeah the uh, the sort of the brake on it or the control rod on it that is true to the movie is that first it takes time to access that new power the people in the van have to research the history lines and figure out, you know, the dumb activity you have to do. Second, you have to do a dumb activity to, to gain those powers. So it takes time. It takes an action of, of some sort, often a action that will cost you hit points or reputation points or sanity points, depending on the length of dumbness that that activity is or what sort of thing against your nature or will you have to do to become that alternate person. And then the other thing is that if you keep doing stuff, in another reality, you start to bleed over into that reality, and you lose your selfhood. And those, I think, are are pretty good robust breaks in theory on on this ability becoming... It's almost
0: like they wrote it to be stealable for a role. It's like, it's it's eminently costed, this uh, multiversal ability.
1: Right. And so the thing to make sure there is, does timing matter in the game? Does number of actions matter in the game? Are there points that when you lose them, you actually suffer some consequence in the game? They're not just empty spendo points. And then lastly, is there a way to model personality bleed in the game? Or is it just you have to role play like you're somebody else, which is maybe annoying, but is not a mechanical, you know, break on. Oh, suddenly I have super strength or suddenly I can reach my arm, you know, around uh, three corners or suddenly, you know, I can, you know, see into ultraviolet or whatever it is that you've, you know, pulled out of the, out of the multi U. And I, I, the other way you can control it down is to say, you know, sort of take it a a, a tiny break and say, it's only things that you could plausibly have as a human being. So no. Like hot dog fingers. Yeah. Like hot dog fingers, normal stuff. So therefore, You could be as strong as the strongest weightlifter in the world. You could be as fast as Usain Bolt, but you can't be the Flash. You can't be Hercules, right? Right.
0: And in fact, it might only just be mental abilities, right? If you run a really Mm dial it down, that you know how to move and fight like a sumo wrestler if you access the uh, muscle memory and, and training of your sumo wrestler equivalent, but you still... Don't have the physique of, yeah, Simo he's still Wessler, right? weigh
1: 110 pounds soaking wet. So good luck. And, and to, to some of that, that's a little bleed over into the matrix, right? Because obviously Neo can access all those knowledge pods via the matrix. So he can fly a helicopter if he needs to, or, you know, uh, you know, shoot guns really well or whatever other skill he needs to download. And again, that's. That's the sort of multi-slot thing that is common in a lot of RPGs. Right. So it
0: creates the question of how multi is your multiverse.
1: Right, yeah. And
0: to expand just from literally the thing that, that Evelyn Wang can do, you could have other multiversal abilities as well. So, for example, someone else might have the ability to reach and get any object that is in their immediate vicinity in an equivalent space. Right. And so they have to go, okay, so in what universe... Am I actually in an armory where there's a cutlass on the wall? Mm-hmm. Oh, boom, I've got a cutlass. And so that would be, you know, a super duper version of uh, preparedness. And once you get into, you know, the, another big multiversal movie this summer was the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And that one, you can escape through different realities when you're being pursued. And that gives you the... uh instead of you reaching into a reality and getting the power from it you're actually literally moving into another dimension which is a very time honored uh, comic book and and uh, nerd culture thing and also is itself immediately limited by okay well now you're in the dimension where everybody's a paint blob what do you do there and so that can also be you know a fun traditional thing that you can do and as is done in that film you can be the one who has the power to carry other people through into uh, other dimensions.
1: Yeah. And then I guess the other thing that we want to address is the powers of the villain, the alternate universe daughter, Joy Wang, played also very well by Stephanie Su, and you know, that sort of ability to draw on abilities from all over the universe. But their personality has basically been completely broken down they They're sort of the omni everything, so they are that power, but without any of the brakes on it or they're at San Zero, so now they don't have to spend to cast a spell like a like a, a call of Cthulhu wizard in that sense so the The notion that the villain is just you but with a unbalanced version of your power is again, I think, a pretty standard superhero trope, right right.
0: And let's see if we can come up with other variations of, of this power. One could be that you actually literally pick someone to swap with. Mm-hmm. And somehow, as you're switching dimensions, you go into a moment of non-time and give them their assignment. And, uh, you know, the role there is what percentage chance that your alternate version of you dropped into your universe is actually going to follow your instructions. Mm-hmm. So you can give a different rating to, you know... You actually want the sumo wrestler version of you. So instead of just knowing sumo wrestler moves, you literally swap places with the sumo wrestler. And does the sumo wrestler want to bar the door so that the 16 goons don't get in? Most of the time, yes, if, but sometimes you fail your role. That would also give the fun bit of... And then you're in the sumo wrestler dimension having a sumo wrestler problem, like you're getting...
1: <laughs> sat on by an enormous Japanese man.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, or, you know, you're getting uh, kicked out of the bar at, uh, at 3 a.m. or, or what, what have you. And so that would be, I think, another uh, fun way to uh, do that power without literally uh, stealing every bit of it.
1: Yeah, another possibility is that you are able to access, and this is sort of a more occult version of it, but rather than reaching into an alternate universe to power this, you're traveling back along your evolutionary tree you're accessing what good old Robert E. Howard would call your, your racial memory or your ancestral memory. So uh, Robert E. Howard character, of course, is accessing the memory of his ancient barbarian ax swing ancestors, but you could, you know, your power is that you're sort of a, a doc savage guy who was, you know, part of a, a lengthy line of specially bred geniuses and polymaths and uh adepts. And so, You've got, you know, oh, I'm going all the way back to, to great grandfather, whatever. And, uh, he happens to have studied, you know, uh, sumo wrestling when he was in Japan. And, you know, I've, I know all those moves, but also I, I now have got great grandfather's priorities and his agenda and he was obviously part of a weird eugenic line of adept. So he probably is not what we in the modern era would consider an unadorned good guy. And you've got those sorts of uh, concerns to deal with that. You're not reaching into other dimensions, but other times in that sense,
0: you could put a Lovecraftian spin on it where you're able to commune across space and time and reality with everyone else who has been possessed by the same Yithian as you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that could make a sort of a cool, Variant uh, for a a Trail of Cthulhu character to have sort of a a jack-of-all-trades sort of ability. And so not only would you be able to uh, have the knowledge of a 16th century pirate and uh, know how to operate the weapon of that era, but... You could also be a fungi from your guff and know how to operate a spaceship
1: briefly enough. Or, or remove someone's brain into a jar.
0: Well, I think that's taking things a little far. Right? <laughs> but that, indeed, you know, if you're going to worry about identity bleed, identity bleed from a, a go uh, I think, would be pretty severe.
1: Or even into an, an, an a non-human entity, because, of course once you start crossing the species barrier along with the time barrier or the dimension barrier, then, first of all, you're Animal Man. Congratulations. We've reinvented Animal Man after a great deal of work. But (laughs) B... Animal um, Man was never a fungi. He was never a fungi that we know of. I'm sure that in some version of it, he's uh, taken on the Cordyceps power to take over people's brains. You're right. I haven't read every Animal Man. But the notion that you've got this vast capacity of things to do, you can only do one of them at a time, that's still the fundamental jack-of-all-trades nature in this case delimited down to animal powers and in this case the disadvantage is first of all you don't have claws you you didn't grow claws or whatever so good luck slashing people in your tiger form you just have to have the strength cutting ferocity and sense of smell and dark vision of a tiger which seems like a pretty good trade um but also, you still are open to those animal instincts. And that's the sort of the downside that, you know, you're, um, you know, you're, you're less biddable And once you've killed that guy, maybe you want to, you know, take a, a sniff and a bite just to make sure.
0: You could also do sort of a futuristic thing where you're a, a robot or a cyborg. And that uh, when you're going off on missions, uh, periodically, all of your uh, sensory experiences are uh, uploaded to the cloud. And uh, when you're killed... You know, a new version of you is is put into service, and you don't start off with all of those uh, memories and experiences because, uh, A, they're overwhelming, B, need-to-know basis. But, you know, when you really need it, you can click in the memory chip of, okay, I I need advanced uh, starship engineering now. And then with it, you know, unfortunately, inevitably, you also get knowledge of your uh, horrible death because when you horribly die, that's the last final upload. Mm-hmm. And you have to like deal with uh, all of those sensory experiences and all of your different uh, lives that you've uh, another version of you has lived and been extinguished. And it's like, wait, I was married in that. Where, where do I do I go? And what if I looked her up? Like, will she marry me again? That would, will also be sort of a fun variation on this basic concept.
1: And then if you're ever looking for, you know, NPCs in any of these versions, except for, I guess, the Animal Man one, these former lives or alternate selves, once they start getting yanked into your stupid super problems, they start having, you know, uh, skin in the game. And so, now they care who wins in your battles against the bad guys. And maybe they bop into you when you're asleep and they make some phone calls or send a text and make a deal themselves that will benefit them the next time they're in your body. And so, what they want, what your pirate self wants is to find a big cache of uh blackbeard's gold and he's going to use your body and the fact that you have the internet to to make that possible and make that happen in a way that you know other bodies have got their own agenda. Yeah, so once you get
0: sucked into the Oak Island mystery
1: and just winds up knee deep yeah, in mud. Just that's that's worse. The next time you access your your body's like a crazy yeah. conspiracy theorist he says, No, we have to we have to look into FDR's uh, financial transactions in nineteen nineteen or yeah, whatever. That's
0: where that's where loose alternate selves go all the time. There's exactly. an extraction point right by the Oak by Oak Island too. <laughs>
1: That's up. what, that's actually what's stored there is a bunch of people's alternate selves yeah. and a big box of googly eyes.
0: Yeah. Well, while, while we're making the Oak Island mystery more interesting than it is, I think it's time <laughs> for us. I think we finished this segment. It's time to see uh, what uh, lurks on the other side. down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through
1: underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press.
0: Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source
1: of sorcery, for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek
0: glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press.
1: It's time once again for Ken and or Robin Talk to someone else. And today it is I, Ken, and I'm talking to someone else. The someone else I'm talking to is Cody Swendrowski of Foundry. Can we say of Foundry? Yeah, I think that's correct. Think pleasure that's to be here. Fantastic. Thanks for coming. Uh, we are the here that Cody alludes to is Gen Con, uh, as well as here on the program. Uh, so if uh, I sound weird and echoey, or you hear the sounds of joyful people running past the theoretically shut and mostly soundproof door of the hotel room. That's where it came from. Uh, so bear with us. And Cody, welcome to the show. Tell us what of foundry means. Uh, right now, people who are, um, I don't know what, even what they're imagining. You holding a big basket of hot rivets, I guess. But
2: You know, we do often get the theming of, you know, metal being made. I Have lava being poured. Um, we've incorporated that into some of our, you know, like branding even. Right. Um, but Foundry is a virtual tabletop platform. If people don't know what that means, it's a way to play games like Thirteenth Age and Gumshoe and D and D online and with your friends, which given the recent times, has surged in popularity.
1: Yes, for some odd reason, everyone got into it circa March of 2020, as I Yeah, I couldn't I imagine why. I think tables ran out or something. Yeah, there was a supply chain issue with China. Um, so, uh, the question that everyone will then ask, I wouldn't ask it myself, but I have a, a duty to my listeners, is, so like Roll20, then? Of course, I like uh, Roll20. Roll20. And so, what differentiates Foundry from the the biggest, if not the uh, sweetest or best dog in the field.
2: Uh, I can actually share the story of how I swapped a Foundry before, obviously, I started working there, but um, I was playing on Roll20, and I saw was, Halloween was coming around, I wanted to run a spooky one-shot, I saw this amazing animated map of this giant pumpkin devouring the party, I bought it, I tried to load it into Roll20... Roll20 doesn't support it. I'm like, well, obviously something supports these. People mm-hmm. are making them, and so I found a Foundry. A year later, I end up getting invited to help develop it, and for me, I really like it because unlike Roll20, we have to pay like 15 20 dollars a month to get access to their API, and the API is fairly limited and you mm-hmm. can't do much with it. Foundry has a giant open API that People have made Doom run in it, um, like actual old school Doom. People have made just incredibly rich multimedia tabletop experiences, and I had a chance to actually start working on the Thirteenth Age system for it, which was a community effort, and I'm like, "Well, twenty rats." You know, you can't touch it. I could make meaningful changes and help others play 13th age. So that's how I got involved. So it's
1: sort of a, uh, there's more of a designer community quality to it.
2: Yeah, at least for me, but I am a nerdy developer as opposed to a nerdy dice roller. For nerdy dice rollers, you know, there's a lot of features like those animated battle maps, like sounds that get louder as you get closer to them, like lighting and doors that make it your maps look really good. Um... There's just a wealth of features that even if you aren't nerdy like a coder like me, you, right. you, a lot of people like.
1: Even humanities nerds, the worst paid of all nerds, <laughs> can still enjoy the Foundry. And so your gig is that you're building out rule sets and making them possible in Foundry? You're building out functionality for Foundry? Both? Neither?
2: My paid job is to help build the core features that sometimes those features are used by players directly. For instance, we just upgraded our journal system to make your campaign notes much easier mm-hmm. and
1: to keep track of. Take that, Obsidian Portal.
2: <laughs> I don't know if we're quite as good as Obsidian, but we're certainly much better than we
1: used to. Listen to the footprints behind you, Obsidian <laughs> Portal.
2: But, like, in my free time, I go help with the community-made rule sets. Foundry, right. when you buy it, doesn't know how to play any games. It doesn't Mm -hmm. know the rules of those games. It just knows how to have maps and tokens and combat orders and sounds. Right. But those things do not take
1: a game game make.
2: So community developers go and Take the Thirteenth Age rules or the Gumshoe rules, and they'd usually take the SRD versions, and they encode all that math junk into the computer, so people can walk up and have a quick and clean
1: game. So they can start playing Thirteenth Age, and the escalation die is added into the combat exactly. That kind of thing.
2: Um, 13th Age, well known for its like trigger system. It's like, oh, I rolled a natural 16+. plus. Computers are pretty good at comparing numbers.
1: Right, yeah, that's, that's in their wheelhouse. To my mind, that's sort of the basics of what a virtual tabletop ought to do, mm-hmm. right? Is take all the stupid, annoying parts of the game out of your hair. Yeah. And then let you add and play with cool graphics and story and, and whatever else. Are there other qualities of Foundry that uh, either you you see on the future or that you're building out now that maybe people uh, even simple beautiful humanities children like myself might be excited by i mean i'm sure that on the level of coding and on the level of sophistication and graphics a million possibilities but to some level the sophistication and graphics are i mean you get that in like assassin's creed right Mm -hmm. you already have that but you're enabling is the human interaction with a, a human GM and human players, and is there stuff there that you see as, you know, where Foundry's taking pole position or is really moving in?
2: Yeah, Um so... There's a bit of downstream trickle effect where by enabling people to make cooler things by enabling those nerdy things, we've seen creators explode in popularity and make these incredible detailed maps where you walk around and the traps trigger by themselves and remind the GM on the world to avoid it. Right. And where you can click, you know, you can click the image of a torch and it rotates the tiles Mm -hmm. and it takes away all the monotony of running a game so you can focus on why we're really here, which is to tell a cool story and experience cool things. So we've seen tons of really cool high quality creations get created because we've enabled that kind of thing. But even if you're making your own homebrew, there's putting things on a map and drawing your, you know, a lot of people log into Roll20 they, you know, draw with a drawing tool and make a couple boxes. That is such. precisely what I did.
1: <laughs> um, Every so often I would upload an archaeological diagram.
2: But as a GM, I in my last campaign had a player who was part werewolf. Mm-hmm. And because it was easy for me to make maps with walls and lighting and darkness and it just seamlessly perf- worked really, you know, quickly, I gave the werewolf more vision in the dark than other parties. Right, yeah. And this leads to natural things like him seeing monsters moving about in the dark before the party. Oh, that's very cool. It's a mechanic that matches the roleplay you want. Yeah, exactly.
1: And that sort of customizable experience, you could imagine a million different... I mean, you're playing a supers game and one of the characters has x-ray vision or you're Mm -hmm. doing whatever. Yeah, and that sort of thing, that targeting down to an individual player choice is sort of the killer app for a VTT versus a more passive video game of whatever kind. Yeah,
2: Yeah. and I think the things like the average player in GM will be most excited about about our latest release coming out in like a week or two is rules like dark vision, rules like x-ray vision or tremor sense now work and visualize that... Correctly, you see people in shades of gray mm-hmm. outside of your range. You see someone when they're moving it with tremor sense, even if the room's completely dark. But if they're floating, you don't, you don't see, see them, right? Which is something you can never do in a physical real game, right? You can ask your players to pretend that they don't see this and you know, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, you can't, you can't say now only, only Steve sees the miniature, yeah, right? But in a visual, in a virtual game, you could do that. And then you've also, in addition to doing this sort of hard brain work you've also been doing streaming and game discussion stuff you're you're not only is obsidian portal have to listen for footsteps <laughs> robin and i have to listen for footsteps as i understand it
2: yeah yeah so i actually managed to somehow queer from rob heinso into joining a like four year long campaign the one that started on roll 20 and we moved to um, foundry and we did the eyes of the stone thief amazing campaign really loved it um two gen cons ago i asked cat tobin if i could stream my like gen con games online she's like oh yeah here uh let's get you on twitch and i'm like oh i do a campaign do you want weekly content she's like yeah um so that went on for two years of streaming we just wrapped up maybe a month ago and
1: and that was a 13th age stream that was
2: 13th age stream we're all 13th age um Lot of fun, especially you know, getting Rob to join at the end. He's like, "Yeah, I've actually never seen the end of Eyes of the Stone." Thing. <laughs> you know, most parties don't live that long, right? But becoming friends with him, we're now launching a spinoff. Well, not really a spinoff stream. We are launching a new stream. I was thinking of calling it something cute, like Cody and Rob talk about stuff. You That's know? a good title. Yeah, I yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. It's got a good rhythm. Uh, <laughs>
1: But along with one of my, you, I think want to do uh, Robin Cody because something about that. Uh, no, no, I just I, that I, foot I, match. You know, just, mm, yeah.
2: No, probably something cuter. Like thirteen differing opinions. Thirteenth page yep. Design stream. But we, along with one of my coworkers who is a writer at Foundry, we are going to talk about design ideas and why is movement tech cool in a kit versus just doing damage and how do you make. You know, a monster design. We're just going to talk about where we feel like, and then try it out in, with occasional
1: play tests. So it's it's going to be almost like in the old days, you'd read a designer's blog as they're putting together a new role playing game, and they'd mention a mechanic, or they'd put in a file, and you can go play test it. You're doing this interactively. In the stream, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Building on the flexibility and ease of customization and Foundry, it's really easy for us to say, well, what would happen if, like, this move did this instead? We can type that in in about 30 seconds and try it, right? We don't right. need to know guess. what it looks like. And in the era of VTTs, rules don't have to be static anymore. You don't have to publish it and then publish an errata and hope people find it and then eventually, you know, publish another edition. You can just keep updating the original rule set, because it's a live service now. Right.
1: And then, is this something that is, doubtless, is a ridiculously naive question, but is this a situation, because when you mentioned this, I'm thinking playtesting is the logical next step here. So, if you've got a, you know, Rob comes up with a monster, or you come up with a maneuver for the fighter, or whatever, is there a way to sort of do a Monte Carlo simulation where you run 10,000 combats against that monster, 10,000? different uh, permutations of that maneuver, and then you can look at it and say, oh, look at that. Most of them work just like I thought they did. This weird edge case messes it up, so let's take that out. Or, oh, I did not know that th- those exploding dice would explode thusly. <laughs> that was a terrible mistake. Let us never speak of it again. Yeah. I- that kind of simulation the thing that is within the realm of possibility, or am I just making things up? No, it's certainly within the realm of
2: possibility. Um, The math of calculating the average damage of something is pretty
1: straightforward. I mean, that's just basic probability. The math
2: of... Okay, but this thing on a natural 16 plus inflicts stunned is a little harder. How do you weight a stun? Well, a stun mitigates damage, and how much damage is it expected to mitigate? Is that worth, you know, what Mm -hmm. is that worth? Exactly. I think some of those topics are what we're going to talk about. How do you actually weight this stuff? At least that's what I want to explore. I'm a nerd. But well i've learned one thing as a gm it's regardless of what my simulations are of a fight because i've sat down and like all right using my own party uh, you know co- copying their date, you know current health and resources and then running a simulation against a boss fight i came up with you know is this too hard Is this too easy they will always outwit and outmaneuver me regardless of what the simulations say players are too you know too smart
1: Yeah, the the wisdom of crowds really kicks in around three. And because they're more incentivized, really, to come up with ways to utilize the rules than you, the GMR. And even if you were that incentivized, you can't do it for every single monster in every Mm -hmm. single encounter. Whereas they are focused, laser focused on their druid being boss. And uh, they'll they'll, uh, they'll push it to the limit to make that happen. And that, of course, is the reason it's fun, right? If Mm -hmm. they didn't care about their druid, the game would be a failure and no one would want to play it. So uh, that's what's coming up with, uh, you and Rob is, uh, are these going to be archived on YouTube? Is it just a catch it on the Twitch or lose it forever? Or how does that work?
2: The medium is a little in the works, but we expect to either be. Doing Twitch streams and archiving it to YouTube or to just do as a podcast setup of the talk and then maybe do some streams captured to YouTube of actual playtesting. Right. Um, we had to delay a little bit. So after Gen Con, we're going to figure out the exact plans and then kick it off.
1: Fantastic. Okay. Well, um, whenever that does happen, let us know so that we can plug it. Until that happy day, how can people keep track of you? How can they How can they find out before I do? What's the one-stop shop for C- Cody Swondrowski News? Well,
2: I am pretty active on Discord. Uh, Foundry actually runs their entire community on Discord. Pelgrin has a Discord as well. Um, you can find the... I don't know my exact numbers, unfortunately. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but otherwise, feel free to email me yeah. at codyatswandrowski.us. I'm sure that's really hard to spell. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it'll be, it'll be in the show notes. And then, uh, if you're on Discord in the Foundry community, I'm sure that they'll be able to find you there, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we do occasional streams of like showing off upcoming features for Foundry or bringing on guests ourselves for, we have a talk show we do about once a month called Hammering It Out again to that Forge theme or that Foundry theme.
1: Yeah. You know, Forge is a whole different uh, confusing (laughs) game terminology. But anyway, that sounds great. Obviously, I wish only the best for more great 13th Age uh, developments, both virtually and in uh, Discord form. And thanks for so much for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and six-guns
1: role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish?
0: Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Astvigeln on drive through. Keep this podcast part of your reality by throwing in with such beloved Patreon backers as Will Ferguson and Fifi Pyatt. Matt Farr,
0: Sam Rupzik, Sean Hoyle, and the Molten Sulphur Blog.
1: the figures glowing in infrared, the whirr of a mysterious force from outside, the weird alien clicking in the backs of our heads tell us that we've entered not just the horror hut, but a specifically predatory incarnation of the horror hut, because beloved Patreon backer Eric, speaker in digressions, says, Prey was so good! Eric is correct. Yes, we both both agree on that. Yes. Internet pundits suggest this is a way forward for lots of other horror or monster franchises. Pick a historical period and transfer the action there. Which franchise period matchups would make for the best RPG scenarios? Right.
0: And, and here's where I used my script writer's prerogative to cheat and pick. The low hanging fruit. <laughs> so, uh, my three choices I, I think are, are, are the obvious ones. I'm, I've left Ken to the in obvious ones. And so one that I would certainly plunk down my, uh, movie going dollars for would be Alien Gladiator. And so the gladiatorial pits receive this new gift from somewhere in, in Persia or on an island on the outskirts of the empire. And it's, it's an egg and the egg we we're told is going to grow. Into the greatest warrior of all time, and uh, some of the gladiators are skeptical of this. They think of the gods as metaphors. Others, who uh, think of them as uh, delivering wondrous gifts, think, "Well, this is, this looks like it's from Hades." But you know that that's how it goes. We need the box office, and then you go through the cycle of the little guy coming out of the egg. You get the face planter, you get the chest burster, and then all of a sudden, down in the fighting pits. Uh, under the Colosseum, the gladiators are fighting for their survival against the alien. And then finally, when he emerges, when he escapes from the Colosseum, he's uh, at the Circus Maximus, the alien, or the people running away from the alien, they uh, knock over a lantern, set some straw on fire, and guess what? We discover where exactly in Roman times we are, we're in 64 AD, at the burning of Rome. And Nero could even have been coming Around, or at least sending his operatives to be the equivalent of Wayland Utani, the mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily, you know, wanting to use the alien uh, as a basis of research and development, but uh, interested in it, of uh, being uh, callous about its possible effect on uh, human life, thinking possibly wants to pin it
1: up in the in the forum and feed people to it.
0: Yes, exactly. And so
1: I, I would certainly uh, pay to see Alien Gladiator. Okay, mine, uh, Robin is Nightmare on Canali di Ormo. And it's set, of course, in Renaissance Venice. And it is dealing with a bunch of artists and neer They're all uh, punk teens, as artists and neer tend to be. And they have a fun and exciting uh, life there in the tippy-top of Venetian privilege uh, during the Renaissance. But, of course, you know, one of them is messing around with something, possibly a dark secret that one of their uh, fathers in the Council of Ten did, that there was a heretic who was, you know, imprisoned and uh, stabbed to death with a thousand hot pokers and died swearing revenge on their children. And when, of course, he wakes up, it is uh, Federico Kruger, and he starts going after people in their dreams. And the dreams, in this case, are, of course, lush Renaissance dreams. And so all the deaths are sort of wild artistic Classical sort of death, so you can have a little Dr. Fibes energy in with it. and This is uh, the
0: Dario Argento movie I would go see. Exactly.
1: The Dario Argento movie, we have to go back in time to young Dario Argento to get made, in fact. Well, yes. (laughs) That's why we have a time machine.
0: But it wouldn't matter that it's uh, narratively incoherent. It would no. have to be. That would be part of the brief.
1: Because it's nightmare on, uh, uh, Canali Yomo, Robin. It, it's gotta be narratively incoherent. And, uh, then when they, you know, have to, uh, go into the dreams to stop him, they, they can, you know, do it by painting a big canvas in which he's being defeated by angels or by, um, uh, uh themselves. And then they dream themselves into that canvas. And that's what, uh, pins him down. And he's, uh, trapped forever. And then we can end with like a, a copy of, of that canvas is in the, you know, basement of the high school where the original fire broke out on the actual Elm Street. And that's where, uh, Freddy Krueger, you know, is, is, is reborn, right? Is that that's the, uh, he was, he was penned up and, uh, right. trapped
0: there. It'd be callback both to, the original film and To the Shining.
1: Exactly, it's it's good fun for everybody, and it would uh, let you do a a super fun uh, bunch of uh, giallo combined with a wild sort of fun CGI that would not necessarily be terrible looking because it would be lush and you would have a direction for it.
0: My next one would be set in 1755 because it would be hellfire club razor where uh francis dashwood and all of his other fellow blasphemous libertines would uh get together for their event on uh Walpurgis and they've uh think that they're summoning the devil uh, which is really just one of their friends in a costume but one of them just has this weird artifact that he uh thought was pretty cool and brought a by fun puzzle people. box yeah uh it's it's the lament configuration and then the cenobites show up and uh the the rest of it sort of writes itself and uh since many famous people were uh members of the hellfire club and the hellfire club continues on after this event for a, a good while uh well it turns out at the end the the cenobites after torturing and uh and devouring the souls of uh, all of these people then assume their forms and then head off into london and uh that would even Uh, give you a note of a possible series of uh, sequels uh, set in 18th century uh, London.
1: Shot of uh, Benjamin Franklin slowly pulling pins out of his face. Exactly. Yep. Good fun. I'm going to take and reuse the tweet that I tweeted after I saw Prey, in which I came up with the best title, which is Predatory, and is set in the South Carolina swamps in 1780, in which our hero, Francis Marion, has to fight not just the hated British, but also an invisible alien bounty hunter. Yes, I'm doing a Predator franchise again. And the thing that is uh, has not been done yet, I think, in the Predator franchise or has been not done super straightforwardly. There's a bit of it in Predators 2. Obviously, in the original Predator, there's sort of a side mission to destroy the commies, but the commies never really take a a part in the war of man versus Predator. The fun thing here is this is a three-cornered fight. And so it's Francis Marion, the predator and the hated British. And whenever Francis Marion almost has the predator on the ropes, the hated British show up at the very tail end. Bannister Tarleton teams up with the predator because he's just that awful. And the predator recognizes a true amoral predator in him. And so that's what, you know, brings Francis Marion to that, that point of, of almost being broken is that he has to fate, fate both of his foes at once. But of course, he's Francis Marion. So he succeeds through some sort of frontier trickery because again, I said Francis Marion and that's what I meant. So I think that would be good fun. You know, flintlocks, you got cannons, you got kegs of powder. So you have a plausible set of things that might hurt the predator. But the, the real fun, of course, is, 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 uh, that, you know, constantly shifting storyline. And there might even be, you know, relatively less hated British who realize that the Predator is, in fact, an alien threat, and some of them help out Francis Marion, you know, in the first act turn, but then the Predator eats them, and that, you know, sets off Bannister Tarleton because he thinks, why, this is another Yankee trick. Speaking of
0: uh, things that are so obvious, they might <laughs> be good and well-executed, <laughs> Tremors at the OK Corral. do a yeah, West version of Tremors because that's where the I forget what the tremorous creatures are called offhand, but that's that's where they live.
1: Graboids, Robin. It's a dumb name.
0: I guess I blanked it out on purpose. <laughs> yes,
1: and well, you should have.
0: Yeah. Now, I don't know whether literally, I mean, at the OK Corral, that it would be an alternate version of the gunfight where the they would the creatures would show up, and then I don't know the the two sides might even band together against them, and it would be a completely different version of history. I guess maybe that occurs in the Quentin verse, mm-hmm. or, or just the general idea of you know a big gunfight between two large groups of people and then the uh, creatures appear. And uh, again, they have to, those who know enough to band together, survive those who want to continue on with the uh, petty fight over uh, sheep herding rights are the ones who get eaten. I think that's a uh, pretty clear cut.
1: Yeah. You could even do it as, you know, the raboids are summoned by all the gunplay in tombstone, but it's the Vendetta ride, and so it's, you know, when Erp is riding out with his posse to go after the rest of the Clantons, that's when the Graboids are like, you know, we're going to follow this guy because he's making all this cool noise. And then you can have it happen as a result of the OK Corral, and that, it, you know, it's unleashed as as a result of that. As right, so the history
0: just, it's screwing up is
1: not nearly as familiar to the audience. Exactly. And, and it's not even being screwed up, because as long as Wyatt Earp and Doc Holiday survive, no one else knows or cares who 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 lived through the uh, vendetta ride so your final choice my final choice robin is a little something that i like to call das relic in which (laughs) the kithoga the monster from the superb original well superb is a strong word super delightful maybe is what i mean original relic movie well it's uh, not a one-off monster there's a lot of those in brazil and the ananerba has found one and shipped it back to the eternal glory of Hitler's Germany. And it's in some on storage facility, maybe Vablesburg castle, maybe somewhere in Berlin. And sure enough, it gets out. And this is sort of like the keep where we have the Nazis fighting a monster. So you're sort of on the one hand, they're people on the other hand, they're Nazis. And so you have a, a fun vibe like that. Are we rooting for these guys? Maybe you have like a, a Hungarian or a Finnish specialist who's sort of been forced to work with the Ananerba a little bit. and Maybe he's our, or she's our, our our viewpoint character, our, our Penelope Ann Miller. And we can just have a straight up monster hunt in which as with a good slasher film, you kind of want everyone to be killed by the monster too. And I think that's what the Nazis provide us is kind of want everyone to be killed by the monster. Plus you can, You know, oh, look, it's the Spear of Destiny. Does that work against the uh, Cathoga? Oh, no, it
0: makes it stronger. It makes it stronger.
1: It's giving it more magic. And then it's like, oh, that's what's going on. It becomes ever more powerful once it eats magic. And sadly, the Nazis have piled up this giant uh, building full of magic artifacts. Well, this will probably end well. And you can have, you know, some degree of, you know, what sort of things can we put together with these magic artifacts that will maybe stop it? Is the Holy Grail going to stop it? Is this, that, the other thing? Or is it just... Nope, you really have to find a way to drive a tank into the Ananaraba building and shoot it a lot of times with a tank, and hopefully that'll do it.
0: And we can steal our idea from Alien Gladiator, and at the end, the as things blow up, it can be the Allied advance into uh, into Berlin.
1: Yeah, the the Russians uh, grab it and carry it off to Siberia. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll take good care of it. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that's a, a pretty good roundup of uh, uh, imaginary movies that uh, both of us would like to see. So let's uh, consider our work here done. But our work in this podcast is on time because I think there's one more segment after this commercial. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors
1: all too real. Mosul in 2016 held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality.
0: From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to
1: come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts.
0: A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden
1: myths permeate the Battle
0: of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying
1: supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes and the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release.
0: The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tells us we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, he will do so at the behest of Friedrich Bjarnason. Although this question is one of the uh, subgenres of why did you create our current timeline and you'll describe the horrible timeline that you averted, because Friedrich asks, why did Time Incorporated need the Roman city in the Pyrenees stricken out of the history books? Because, yeah, it turns out they've dug up a big, old, very cosmopolitan, very sophisticated Roman city that nobody even knows the name of. So it, you must have had to do one heck of a bailout.:
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's why they pay me the big bucks. The excavation is at a uh, place called El Foral de la Tuta, which basically means, I think, the fountains of the Tuta. It's excavated uh, in 2018. They dug around for about three years. The whole thing is about a mile northwest of a little village called Artieda in the southern slopes of the Pyrenees. Uh, I think the nearest big city that anyone's heard of is Zaragoza, but it's way away from Zaragoza. It's off in the boonies. It's in the province of Zaragoza. Right. Yeah. They found four hectares so far of urban site. There may be more. If it's only four hectares, then that means its population was fairly restricted. It couldn't have been more than 2000 people just because you can't fit that many Romans into four hectares. But by 100 AD, it had infrastructure. It had public monuments. It had sidewalks and streets. It had baths, it had a water supply system, it had a sewer system, probably a temple, certainly a cemetery. So, it's it's got something going on. It became, later, a Visigothic village, although the Visigothic village, interestingly, doesn't show up until the 800s. So, for some period of centuries, it was completely abandoned. But the villi- Visigothic village becomes an Aragonese village, and this is the village that becomes basically Arteta. It moves down the, the, the hill to the current Arteta, but it was known as Arteta, Arteta, or Arteta even later on. So that's what we know. I, of course, as you do, Robin, when you are faced with a lost Roman city, uh, you turn, or I turn, to the Barrington Atlas of the Greek and Roman world. And I look in the Pyrenees, and sure enough, there's no city there, Robin. They didn't put it down in the Barrington, but the Barrington also has a list of Roman place names that we don't know where they were. (laughs) So, one of possibility is a city called Articabe, and another is the fun one, because it's by my boy, Avianius. And Avianius, you'll be excited to know, lived in the 4th century AD, and he was a... What do I want to say? He w- wanted to be a historian, but he mostly wanted to be a historian of myths. Right. And he wanted old, cool, fun, classical Rome, not boring, bureaucratic, high-tax Christian Rome. Right. So, he was f- a fourth-century Elliptony writer. Uh, yeah, in, in a lot of ways. And so, he wrote what purported to be a big geography of the world, but- when it came time to give the past of that world and he wrote in a deliberately archaic style, he wrote as though he was Strabo in the first century AD and uh, with breaking out into poetry, even sometimes
0: that can happen to the best of us.
1: He would then give sort of fun, imaginary backstories to cities instead of their dull, real backstory. And so he lists a lot of places in his geography, but all classicists put giant flaring asterisks next to those because of Avianus is literally making things up. And this is why I love him. But one of the places in Avianus that they have not identified is a place called Pyrenei Civitas, meaning the city in the Pyrenees. And that seems to me, between the Avianus connection and the fact that it only has the name That City in the Pyrenees, to be a little bit like what we're looking for, Robin. And I feel like there are your if it wasn't Articabe, which we don't know where it was, and has the same first syllable as Artieda, although I grant that the Ikabe is a bit of a stretch, I think Pyrene Civitatus is or Civitas is a a strong candidate for the trace that was left after the Veilout. Right.
0: Yeah, so you're you're doing a great job of making it seem as if you haven't been there and didn't deliberately remove knowledge of it from the time stream. So this is a point where you described the dark timeline that you uh, averted by veiling it out.
1: Right. Well, as you know, Robin, a great deal in the world depends on France and Spain being different countries. They're the the Pyrenees acts to divide them. It, it does generally a pretty bang up job, Charlemagne and Napoleon, notwithstanding, uh, they fought a whole war, uh, the war of Spanish succession, a global war, the first global war over whether or not they could be the same country. The answer seemed to be uh, no, but I'm here to tell you, Robin, that if uh, Pyrenees Civitas, if Articabe had stayed in existence and established a cross-Pyrenees major trade route and thus a cross-Pyrenean kingdom, which would have been begun by the Aquitani, the uh, people that lived in the whole area and are kissing cousins to the Basques and the Navarrese in uh, Spain, that that Cultural triangle, if it had gotten to be its own country and had expanded into both France and Spain, into Spain during the Reconquista, drawing on the resources of France, it is a Articabian, not uh, a Frank who defeats the uh, the Moors uh, at Tours and Poitiers. So they move north into France. You basically have, and again, I've got no brief against the Vasconis. They're fine people, but the trouble is that both France and Spain acting separately, almost extend fundamentally totalitarian rule over Europe uh, by themselves. You have uh, Charles V's attempt. Uh, You have the Spanish Armada that almost succeeds in wiping out uh, England and democracy and Shakespeare. Then you have Louis XIV uh, nearly consolidating all of Europe under his, well, I mean, it's an iron heel, but it's a very, very fashion it's high couture iron heel uh, but it's still an iron heel robin then lastly you have napoleon who once more were it not for those pesky pyrenees would have maybe made something of himself so the existence of this trans pyrenean cultural military political corridor basically means dictatorship in europe if not under charles v or the equivalent pyrenean dynasty then definitely by the early modern era. And that, as I mentioned, it threatens democracy and Shakespeare and all manner of things that uh, not just do I personally enjoy, but uh, the Time Incorporated likes, for example, you know, bank-backed capitalism because that's how they pay my paycheck. And so they they would like all of those things to continue. So it's nothing particularly bad or wrong about the Vascones, again, they're good people, but they set up a geopolitical breakdown between France and Spain that unfortunately dooms the Anglosphere, and we can't have dooming the Anglosphere. And so, when they were uh, taken down by a particularly virulent strain of plague, it was relatively easy to convince all the other Romans to not go back there because of that virulent strain of plague, and uh, that's what sort of wiped them out for uh, 300 years. And were it not for that jerk Avianius and his weird poetry, my plan would have succeeded to this day.
0: Well, but it's no threat now. We can have a no, yeah. nice little groovy set of ruins if you needed to conceal it for longer. I'm sure you would have.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a reason they only found four hectares, Robin. Right. <laughs> yes, and so I, I can I can drive a backhoe. It, yes, it, and it's overtime once I had to knock down a whole city. Right. So the adventure hook
0: here is you know the discovery of a new roman city and uh, you could come up with all sorts of other non-time travel ruins for why it was uh removed from history uh, probably because of the monsters mm-hmm. who are still underneath yeah who, uh, if you dig them up they either you know their souls come out of their jars and there's a sort of a possession body snatchers thing or
1: there's well, well so it's a much bigger cemetery than it is a city i'll tell you that even in the archaeology yes yeah. Um,
0: or, you know, there's, uh, I don't know, an alien gladiator or, or a graboid
1: down there that can, mm-hmm. uh, be released. And um, of course, Frank Bolton up long presupposes that the Chochos and the god of time, Chognar Fawn, once lived in the Pyrenees and were moved to Tibet by the migration of the Miri Negri. So maybe it's Chognar Fawn is down there and his time waves are what wiped the city out of history.
0: Now they can blame your activities on Chognar Fawn. Yeah. I think it's time not to say anything more. We don't want to and affect that because right. uh, just I, I hear he has a temper.
1: Tiptoes slowly away yes. from his flailing proboscis.
0: Yes, because you should see his Twitter account. It's it's unhinged. I'm surprised they don't suspend him. Just goes back in time and gets unsuspended again. Yes. Uh, so we're just going to sneak backwards uh, into the bushes like Homer Simpson, but we'll sneak back out of the bushes next week for more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games Pelgrane Press Ask the Gown Arc Dream
1: Dork Tower and Pro Fantasy Software Music as always is by Jim Simple Audio editing by Rob Borges Support our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash Robin
0: Protect this podcast from unfairly well-equipped alien hunters by joining such resourceful backers as Randy Ship, Ryan Lasseter Tennant Reed Andrea Coletta and Derek McMullen Where this show or drink It from a mug with Kenny Robin merch at teepo.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Check out our latest mythos rabbit design, Bunwich Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.